This is crime scene investigator Chris G leading you under the police tape and into a crime scene. Join me as we discuss the ever-changing world of forensic science. Put on your PPE, ready your fingerprint brushes and experience the drama of a crime scene. Hello everyone, my name's Chris G and I'm a real-life crime scene investigator. I thought I'd jump into the world of podcasts and what better way to start than with a very special guest. But firstly, these podcasts are to welcome you into the world of crime scene investigation and to give you an insight maybe not available to you before now. I've been a crime scene investigator for over 11 years, based here in the UK. I joined the police when I was 19 years old, but I'm now into my 30s and, well, I consider myself no longer a rookie. I do love sharing my experiences and hopefully you'll learn a thing or two with these podcasts. Uh, If you're a student uh, looking to study forensics or just someone that enjoys a police drama on TV, then fingers crossed this will be something you find really interesting. But it gives me great pleasure to have a very special guest on my first show. It was so fascinating being able to speak to him and I honestly didn't want the call to end. Uh, he's given us so many exciting stories and it's no wonder that he's so very interesting to listen to himself. So I just need to apologise for the audio. I forgot to ask my special guest to wear some earphones. So you hear a little bit of feedback from my voice, but thankfully I don't do a lot of the talking. It's my guest that does most of the talking. So apologies for that. But anyway, stay tuned and I hope you enjoy our chat. Hello everyone, I've got uh, a UK number one best-selling author, he's sold over 20 million uh, books uh, globally and his books have been translated into 37 languages. I've got the the one and only Peter James with me, hello Peter. Hi Chris. Hello, so my first question I'm going to pose to you is is lockdown related, so at the moment uh, we are kind of under lockdown, it's kind of... um, it's getting a bit more relaxed, the lockdown, but it's still fairly um, fairly restrictive. So people may think that a writer would be easily adjusted to the lockdown situation, being uh, staying in at home and writing. Um, however, I know that you travel the world doing your doing your research for each book. So I was going to ask, how are you coping with lockdown, and is it affecting your writing? Great question. I remember some years ago, I think it was the governor of Wandsworth Prison once said that his favorite inmates were ex-public schoolboys who'd been to boarding school. <laughs> they could cope with prison conditions best or more. <laughs> so probably writers like myself are, are probably more able than, than most people to cope with working from home. I The first thing that lockdown caused me to do was to change the... Um, the subject of the next Roy Grace novel. I'd been working on uh, writing a novel with a lot of help actually from an FBI detective in America who spent 20 years tracking down murderers in hospitals. And I was going to write about a serial killer in a British hospital. Uh, And I thought, "Mm, I better nix that for two reasons. (laughs) I don't think anybody 
is going to want to read anything bad about medical staff right now. Yeah. And secondly, I, I needed obviously to spend a lot of time researching in hospitals. Um, that's quite impossible. So I've had, I had to change the subject. So that was the sort of first negative. Um, the second negative is that my new Roy Grace novel, Find Them Dead, should have come out uh, last week on May the 14th with our traditional big launch party on, on Brighton Pier. And sadly, that got nixed. And because bookshops are shut in England, uh, the whole uh, launch has been moved now to July the 9th, but there won't be any razzmatazz party. Um, and the third thing is I had a whole summer of promotion around the book, attending various festivals, Chiddingstone being one, Stratford being another. And, of course, all the festivals have now become virtual ones. So I've been doing them by Zoom, <laughs> <laughs> which is okay. But, you know, I do quite like to have a drink, you know, by the <laughs> Do an evening event. That's a little yeah. bit harder to sit in front of the screen glugging. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's nothing stopping you having a drink now. It's just it's not. It's yeah, just it's a bit more lonely, isn't it? <laughs> yes, drinking alone is not such a clever idea. Yeah. But the plus side is there's there's several pluses, and and obviously it's, it's horrendous for so many people, both those who've suffered it. I feel very sorry for any couple mm. who are stuck in a in a flat who hate each other who are stuck in a flat. <laughs> And, and it's having a big impact on domestic violence, obviously. But the plus side is that our animals, you know, we have a big menagerie, you know, we have our three dogs, we have goats, we have cats, hens. Um, you know, we see them all the time, and, and that's just wonderful. Um, normally, I'm on an aeroplane every 10 days going somewhere and, and doing a tour. So it's the first time in, in many, many years I've actually been able to enjoy spring at home and, and see the garden develop. And biggest bonus of all, never in my entire writing career have I actually been ahead of schedule on a book. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, always at first, isn't it? <laughs> I, I, I always plan, I write a target for every Saturday once I start a book. And my target for this coming Saturday should have been uh, about 75 pages. And I'm already on Thursday at 120. Fantastic. <laughs> Almost doubled your, uh, your target. Yeah, so, every cloud. Yeah, definitely. Oh, it's really interesting how you have had to adapt your, your um, say, the, the subject of your Roy Grace novel. Um, and I guess, yeah, it's, it's a credit to you and your imagination, the fact that you've had this idea and then all of a sudden you've got to come up with a new one very fairly quickly. Yes. And the, and the other big question um, relating to... COVID and lockdown is, should I as an author be setting my new Roy Grace novel like pre-COVID, post-COVID or now? And I've actually taken a gamble at the moment and I have started a book in June of this year, right. slowly coming out of lockdown, but it's still all prevalent because I, I do like to try and write what's current. Yeah. And I feel to, to, to write it last year would be a cheat. And, uh, and to write it next year when hopefully we're coming out the far side, yeah. which might be a cop-out as well. Yeah, but I think a lot of fans of your book, um, your books will appreciate the kind of realism that you go into, the fact that it's all based in Brighton, which I think I ask you about uh, a bit later. So I, I think that they really enjoy relating to your books in some way. So the fact that you're covering 
covering COVID and the struggles that policing and the public will go through, I'm, I'm sure your fans will love that. Thank you. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> okay, I'll move on to the next question. So uh, you've had an incredible career and written a variety of novels, but you're best known for your crime novels. What or who inspired you to write about crime? Do you know what inspired me to write about crime was um, I wrote my first, my first three novels were very bad spy thrillers. Don't ever bother to read them. <laughs> first one was published in 1981, and I, I got really despondent because I was delighted they were published, but really distraught because they didn't sell. Hmm. And I poured my heart out to a friend at Penguin. She was actually a, my sister-in-law's best friend, a girl called Lizzie Buchan. She's now a famous writer herself. And she said, darling, why on earth are you writing spy thrillers? What can you ever know about the world of spies? You're up against people like John le Carre, who've been in the security services. You'll only ever write successfully if you write about something that you can research. Yeah. You know? And it was the best piece of advice I was ever given. Anyway, about two weeks later, we got burgled. And we were living in the center of Brighton, and a young detective called Mike Harris came to take fingerprints and he saw he saw my books and he said oh if you ever want any research help with the police give me a call and he was married to detective Renata who at that time was on the child protection unit at John Street in Brighton and we got friendly with them and they invited us to a barbecue at their, their house up in Saltby and we went and there were 12 of their friends there all of them cops <laughs> Traffic, response, homicide, neighborhood protection. They were all there for you. <laughs> and as I talked to them, I suddenly thought, my God, these guys, the male and female, see more of human life in a 30-year career than anybody else does. Yeah. Everything, you know, in a single day, you can go from a cop death to a couple swindled out their life savings to a fatal accident to a murder, whatever. And that was the start of it. Um, when... Mike Harris and, and some of the, his other friends that I became friendly with realized I was genuinely serious. They started inviting me to spend time with them. I'd uh, go out on patrol in, in a car. Uh, and it got to a point where they uh, even smuggled me into crime scenes occasionally. <laughs> uh, and I sort of slowly over about the next decade sort of became a little bit of the furniture of Sussex Police in, in, a, in a nice way. I think they, I started putting police characters into my th early thrillers. And I think Sussex Police liked the fact that I showed them genuinely and tried to be really accurate. And they, and they helped me with that. And then in about 1997, I was introduced to a, a young DI in Hatchie in and Hove called Dave Gaylor. And they and I just immediately clicked. And I was writing a psychological thriller at the time called Denial, uh, and there'd been a murder in that. And he said, tell, I was about halfway through, he said, tell me about it. So I started telling him about it. He said, hang on a sec. What, why haven't you got an outside inquiry team doing this? And I don't think your, your detective would have done that. And I don't think this woman would have said that either. And I thought, wow, this guy, has got a really creative side to him. And it was something I learned subsequently, that what, what makes a really good detective, unlike the caricatures you so often see on television where they tend to be sort of bolshy and authoritative yeah. is that actually they are incredibly sensitive caring and creative people yeah. and and the, probably the most important quality 
to any executive to have is to have empathy. Mm. And they've, they've had the two qualities, I think, that go to make a really good detective, and they're completely opposite character traits. The first is you have to be incredibly anal. Uh, and I'm sure you know this. You know, oh, <laughs> Every major crime is, is a huge puzzle of yeah. hundreds of thousands of pieces painstakingly put together. But so often they're solved by just complete blue sky thinking. Mm. Out of the blue, bit of luck, or luck that's picked up on. Yeah. And Dave and I became good friends. And over the next five years, he rose up through the ranks and helped me more and more with my books. And he was promoted in 2002 to Detective Chief Superintendent effectively at that time head of major crime to Sussex. Mm. And my publisher, Pam McMillan, said, had I ever thought of creating a detective as a central character? So I went to Dave and I said, how would you like to be a fictional cop? <laughs> and he absolutely loved it. We worked together closely on every Roy Grace novel. Um, we have a kind of routine where we go to the um, same table um, at the um, Ginger Fox in, in just outside Brighton. <laughs> with a new moleskin notebook and we kind of plan out the book then he reads every like 150 pages and we've done that ever since and over the years we've become very close mates so when i got married to laura in 2015 dave was best man uh, and i always joke i say you know some people travel with their private detective i travel with my private detective chief superintendent <laughs> um but dave opened introduced me to so many police officers at all levels, not just in Sussex, but in the Met, um, and, and London, and around the world, right? Like New York, Russia. And I, I, I find that what's, what's wonderful now is I've, I've got a, a reputation for trying, for trying to be the guy who gets it right. And I get offers of help from police officers all over the UK and, and, and the world these days. Um, that's to me it's critical to get right and am i right in saying that dave is now taking up his his pen and <laughs> pen and paper and becoming an author himself no he did have a go uh, a few years ago and then decided no he didn't stick to helping me the, the one who has become is becoming very good is graham bartlett that's right graham bartlett graham, yes. graham bartlett uh, when dave retired um, from sussex police although we continued to work together as much as ever Graham Bartlett, who then was commander of Brighton and Hove, became my sort of principal point person. And we, and we always just got on really well. And he told me that his ambition when he left the police was to become a writer. And he, when, he, when he, he got A19 um, at the age of 49, and he, he said to me, he said, I really want to write a book. I said, you know what? I said, the problem is, Graham, that it's very hard. So I get, a, I probably get an email from a police officer somewhere in the UK once a fortnight. You know, I want to write a book, and, and would you mind taking a look at it? And I say, well, send me the first chapter. And I say, and almost invariably, it's like I was proceeding in a westerly direction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that yeah, sounds about right. It's like the way they, you know, the way they speak, the way they talk, talk to you know that precision. And I said to Graham first. Uh, Firstly, you know, it's a struggle. And secondly, you know, you, to really have a successful book, you, you almost need to have arrested the great train robbers or, or the craze. Um, and then I had an idea. I said, well, you know, we've worked together quite closely. Why don't, what about writing a book about policing Roy Grace's Brighton? Uh, you know, all the kind of real cases that you've done, the 
have in part or in total inspired my writing. So we collaborated on that, and it was called Death Comes Knocking, Policing Roy Grace is Bright, which came out about four years ago. Got to number four on the Sunday Times. It was Fantastic. And then we collaborated again on um, a book about the Babes in the Wood Murders, yeah. which came out, it's a brilliant book, it's called Babes in the Woods, and that came out in February this year. And meanwhile, uh, Graham's embarking on his written a novel, and I have to say, it's, it's cracking. Oh, He's editing it, my agent's taken him on, uh, and I'm really excited for him. Uh, well, that sort of all leads me on to my next question, really. Um, to anyone who's listening who is considering getting into writing and becoming an author, what advice would you give them? Read, read, read. Um, I am actually coming up with a handbook for, 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 for would-be authors, which we'll be able to send people online quite soon. But the most important thing, all writers learn from their peers and from writers before us. Um, when I started out, I would read a book that I really admired, Take Silence of the Lambs, mm. and, and I would deconstruct it literally deconstruct it. If you're going to be a car mechanic, you know, you take a car apart, you take the engine apart, yeah. try to figure out, you know, all the bits, what they do. And in the same way, I would study a book. What made me hooked? What made me read on? Mm. Um, what kept me reading on? Because mm. I guess in, in my world, in my forensic world, I would be assigned a mentor and I'd be watching them to see how they would tackle a crime scene and everything. Um, it's no different from you when you're starting out. You need someone as a kind of mentor figure. You need to learn some somehow. Um, Absolutely, you do. I think that um, I mean, so often people say, I, I want to write a book. And I say, oh, do you read much? Oh, no, no, not really. What? I go, mm. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I remember when I was 14 and I read Graham Greene's Brighton Rock, which was written in 1937, set in Brighton. And that book blew me away. And you had this... Had a great opening line, which I, within three hours of arriving in Brighton, Hale knew they meant to murder him. You know, you have to read on. Who is Hale? Why is he in Brighton? Who's going to murder him? And then, secondly, it had um, this wonderful villain. It's got this 17 year old boy gangster called Pinky, who's in charge of this bunch of middle aged misfits, sort of second rate crims. And Pinky is a murderer. He's also a devout Catholic, terrified of eternal damnation wow. and it's this wonderful and it's got the most the, the psychologically darkest end of any novel i've ever read still and that was called sorry that book? Brighton rock, Brighton rock that's it's it. a short book um but it's just brilliant and it captured brighton and i put that book down at 14 and i promised myself that one day i will try and write a crime novel set in brighton that was 10 as good as brighton rock well yeah you uh, you kept that promise tenfold didn't you <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, so my next question that I've got is, Roy Grace is the hero of your famous Dead series. How has he evolved from your first book, Dead Simple? When we first meet Roy in Dead Simple, he's um, coming up to his 39th birthday, and we learn that his wife, Sandy, who he loved and adored, had vanished without trace nine years earlier on his 30th birthday. He literally come home from work, she was gone. And for nine years, while he continues to function as an effective homicide and major crime detective, 
all his private time, he's been hunting for Sandy. You know, was she murdered? Was she abducted? Did she run off with a lover? Did she have a brainstorm? Did she have an accident? Even He's even gone to, Claire, to mediums and clairvoyance. Mm. And so he hasn't been able to move on in his own private life. And then during the course of the series, and I'm just writing the 17th book at the moment, and I, I, I decided not to do what say, Ian Rankin did. Ian Rankin moved readers forward a year with each book, mm. with the result that he ended up hitting 60, and then luckily a retirement age in Scotland got extended to 65. He's now, he's now gone beyond that. I decided to play with time a little bit so that every Roy Grace novel takes place usually within a few days or a few weeks after the last one um, in real time, but I move them forward culturally a year. Each year, so when we first met Roy in nineteen, he's coming up to thirty-nine. It's now seventeen books later. He's only forty-two. <laughs> he's aged uh, well, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah. And part of the reason I did that was that like, in Dead Simple, where he's just starting to move forward, he meets and starts falling in love with Cleo, who runs the mortuary, and you know, even days in a new love affair are critical, let alone weeks. Yeah. I didn't want to jump the book a year because that would be it. You know, they'd, they'd either be together or not. Um, so during the course of the, the of the books, firstly his love for Cleo blossoms and, and, and goes into marriage, and then they have a kid. Meanwhile, um, he still hasn't totally given up on, on looking for Sandy. And when he gets a, he gets about five or six books in, he gets a, a call from an old mate who reckons he's seen her in a, in a park in Munich. Um, and it sets him on a journey there. And many books later, we do actually discover uh, what happened to Sandy, and we discover another secret. Yeah, she's got a bit of baggage, hasn't she? A bit of baggage <laughs> that, he, that he's now lumbered with. Yeah, so not only is Roy Grace, um, he's tackling the crime scene well, but he's also got a lot of a lot of personal problems as well. Um, so, yeah. Absolutely, and I think that's something that, that people forget mm. about. Um, all emergency service workers, mm. you know, the, the police officers do have, and CSIs and, and yeah. fire officers, ambulance, they have their own private lives that aren't always that perfect. Yeah. Or they have to see terrible things. I, I, I know a traffic officer who was first on the scene at a horrible murder. You probably remember it. It was in East Sussex, and two small children were gassed by their mother. Uh, trying to set the husband up, and, and she put them in the boot of the car. Mm-hmm. And he arrived first on the scene, and I think they were like three and five, and That's he right, tried, yeah. tried to resuscitate them for half an hour, but they, they were long gone. And then he had to go home and bathe his own kids and put them to bed as you know, if nothing had happened. Mm-hmm. And people forget that about me. And I try, that's why I try to show in, in the books as well that, 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 what it actually means to actually be a police officer. Yeah. Yeah, because when you uh, when you walk away from the office, you've still got a lot to take home with you sometimes. Um, so yeah, like when I when I leave the office, I try and leave what I've dealt with at work at work, but sometimes it's impossible really. But the important thing for to, for police officers and police staff to know is that there's help out there as well. Um, yeah. Well, we'll try and pick this up a bit to a cheerier subject. <laughs> um, so your books are mainly based in the city of Brighton, situated along the south coast of the UK, for those that don't know. 
Even though Roy Grace can end up travelling the, the globe, the troubles always end up on Brighton's doorstep. Why does Brighton provide the perfect backdrop for your for your crime novels? Well, I was lucky enough to be born and raised in Brighton. And firstly, um, hardly anybody's used Brighton as a literary backdrop. You know, there was Graham Greene, and there's a few writers before him who've had bits of books in Brighton, but very few have actually used Brighton. And three previous chief constables have told me that Brighton is a favoured place to live in the UK for first division criminals. <laughs> and if you were going to design, if you as a criminal wanted to design your perfect criminal environment, you would design Brighton um, for, the, for some of the following reasons. One is you've got a major seaport on both sides. They're great for bringing in drugs, exporting stolen cars, antiques, yeah. people smuggling. You've got uh, Shoreham Airport, no customs, no immigration. You've got miles of coastline, totally unguarded. Again, smuggler's paradise, and that's how Brighton began as a smuggling village. Yeah. Then you've got what all villains want, which is lots of escape routes. Mm -hmm. You've got fast road network out to London along the coast. You've got a major international airport 20 minutes up the road in Gatwick. Um, you've got the tunnel, channel tunnel, you then got um, a huge drug community, um, the, the, the less glamorous and sad bomb was the injecting drug community, and for years Brighton had the reputation of injecting drug death capital of the UK. And mm. um, Also, it's a massive party town, so you've got constant stag nights, hen nights, it's a big club, clubbing town, mm. so it's a huge recreational drugs market. You've got... Um, quite a young community. You've got two universities. It's become a big media hub. Um, so you've got, uh, and it's a very tolerant city. So it's a, it's a phenomenally receptive drug market in, 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 in the worst possible way. And on top of that, it, Brighton used to have the largest number of antique shops in the UK. So it was the perfect place to fence stolen goods. I mean, in 19... As recently as 1993, The Independent had a front-page headline which said, if you're ever burgled, head straight for Brighton's lanes and look in the windows of the antique shops." <laughs> You'll see all your stuff. <laughs> yeah. And on top of that, it's a lovely place to live. <laughs> yeah. But uh, oh, I hope people listening to this aren't uh, would-be criminals that are thinking, oh, I'm going to flock to Brighton now. <laughs> it's got everything I need. But yeah, I can see why it's created the perfect setting for... Um, for all your kind of criminals that um, feature in your books? It was, I mean, it's got a historical thing to, to I mean, Brighton was originally a kind of elegant spa town. And the, the worst thing, the best and worst thing that ever happened was, I think it was 1843 when they opened the London Brighton Railway Line. And at that time, London, unless you were rich, was a horrible place to be. So all the villains in London poured down to Brighton. They brought prostitution, cockfighting, protection racketeering, uh, you know, all kinds of illegal gambling, and they stayed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's my uh, my ancestors right there. <laughs> Mine and yours, eh? <laughs> but yeah. Um, so we're staying on forensics now. So to the listeners that... Uh, are tuning in to hear about forensics to this podcast. Do you have a cool CSI character in your books? <laughs> well, I do. I've had this guy called Chris G, who's a <laughs> <laughs> I 
Um, and I've had terrific help over the years from you and, and from many of your colleagues, James Stather, um, and the whole kind of CSI team. Yeah. Because, uh, again, getting back to my kind of determination to always try and get the research right, and you know just how fast changing mm. uh, the world of forensics is. And yeah. It's phenomenally, phenomenally quick. I mean, in even since I started writing, so much has changed. And the first Roy Grace book was 2000 and, oh, 2005 it came out. And in, in 15 years, there's been enormous changes. It has, yeah, especially in the UK. And yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so there you go. If you, want to, uh, if you want to hear more about what I get up to, uh, <laughs> read Peter's books. <laughs> Um, we've got some very exciting news that uh, ITV are turning your first two books into a TV drama. What can you tell us about this? Yeah, ITV, um, I, I'm really delighted because I've held back from going to television for a long time because I wanted to be with a company that actually really got it right. Um, I've got an absolutely dream team with ITV. They're planning to do the whole Roy Grace series. They, going to production this year with the first two with Dead Sample and Looking Good Dead. Next year they're planning to do three or four. And I've really got a dream team. They're, they're being written by Russell Lewis, who writes Endeavour, yeah. who I think is the best writer of crime TV alive today. Um, the producer is a great old mate of mine called Andrew O'Connor. Um, Andrew did Peep Show. Oh, yeah. yeah he's, he's done a lot of great stuff. We've worked together when I was in the film and television business back in, back in the 90s. And he knows just how important it is to get things right for me. And ITV have agreed, they've taken on Dave Gaylor as the advisor. Oh, wow. So he will be on set on location throughout to kind of clever whip hand on any, any, any if a director tries to do anything that's not right. <laughs> Obviously within, within sensible reason. Yeah. Um, ITV are doing it in Brighton. They've set up production offices at the race course. Um, they've rented the old tax offices in Worthing where they're actually building the sets, yeah. uh, building the mortuary and, and major crime suite. Um, and they're spending serious money on it. So uh, they're, they're, the intention is um, for, they're aiming it at the, the 8 to 10 o'clock Sunday night slot, which I think is the best slot on television. So I, I couldn't be more excited. And I think it's going to be great for Sussex too. And I hope it's going to be good for the image of the police as well, because I think, you know, you know, you know the books. I do genuinely support the police in so many ways. You know, I, I think the police are a major part of the glue that holds civilization together. And yes, you get the odd idiot, like the guy up in the Lakeland who put dye into a lake. Yes. <laughs> and, and you get the it's sad you get the odd idiot who gives them the bad name but yeah. you know, I've seen so much bravery so much sensible behaviour yeah. you know, I remember and we both knew him the wonderful late Tony Omatozo traffic cop yeah. sadly died about three years ago and I was with him one time and, and traffic cops have a reputation sometimes for giving the police a bad name Tony could not have been more different. I remember one time I was in Burgess Hill with him, and there was this woman, she'd upturned, overturned her Nissan Micra. And, and luckily she wasn't in physically injured, and she got out, and she was standing shaking beside the car. 
Tony went up to us and said, sorry, man, you can't park there. <laughs> oh, bless him. <laughs> oh, it's things like that you never forget, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, exciting news then that uh, they're going to be filming soon. And I think at the moment there's uh, some fantastic like British TV dramas going out. Um, and you must be proud to be one of them at the moment as well. No, I'm thrilled. It's John and the the lead actor playing Roy Grace is John Sim. And he is the nicest, nicest guy. And I had a long, we were going to have lunch a few weeks ago, and then we ended up having Skype instead. And it's really interesting. His father-in-law was 35 years and met Copper. Really? Oh, yeah, wow. so he totally gets, again, my, my, my point about getting the research right, he said, because his father-in-law just shouts at the screen at Koch. <laughs> um, also, the, 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 the extraordinary thing is that when I created Roy Grace, uh, if, if you'd done a photo fit, John Sim would have been him. Yeah. Oh, so he looks exactly like I, I, I've always imagined Roy. Yeah, and how, uh, I think it'd be great. And how fantastic that, yeah, his dad used to be a, uh, a cop, so... Yeah, yeah he understands the job. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so your next Roy Grace book, Find Them Dead, comes out on the 9th of, Ju 9th of July. Sorry, What can we expect from this book? Well, um, I did jury service back in 2005, and I was just appalled. <laughs> <laughs> Justice? Hmm. So this is your way to get back at them, is it? <laughs> well, so I've always, I've always quite wanted to, I mean, and I've had other friends talk about when they've been on jury service. I mean, I know one friend of mine was on a jury when they had this Tweedy, Tweedy Custody sort of Meals on Wheels, you know, Women's Institute woman. And they had this gay guy on trial. And, and the defense, the prosecutor only got halfway through laying out his case and they had a recess. And this woman says, well, man's obviously guilty, doesn't he? <laughs> and my mate on the jury said, well, why do you say that? She said, well, he's a homosexual. Goodness me. Um, and so I've... I haven't tried to ridicule the jury, but what um, what I wanted to do was to write about what it really means to be a jury, um, a juror. And I spent time with two judges in Sussex, um, Christine Lang, who's actually the senior uh, judge, and, and also um, an, another brilliant one. And they actually let me sit on the bench during jury selection on. on on a murder trial, which is just fascinating. And one thing I learned about juries is that we, they don't often convict on the facts, they convict on emotion, hmm. on the story. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, who can sway them is, is a big part of it. So I wanted to look into that. Also, I, several times in the last three years, I've been out with the Met uh, Violent Crime Task Force I've got a, a mate who's an inspector on that, and it was the task force set up by Theresa May and the Mayor of London, um, and, and totally underfunded and it was chaotic. But they, 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 their remit was to try to tackle knife crime, and then the evolving county lines mm. crime, and, and the whole county lines thing fascinated me because it's what, people know this name county lines, but most people don't actually know what it actually is. So I determined I wanted to learn about it and, and, and put it into a book. And the story of Find Them Dead basically revolves around a, a mother. She's 
42, um, five years earlier, her husband and son were wiped out in a car crash. Uh, she and her teenage daughter survived, and obviously they're very close. And the daughter um, is just off on the gap year uh, down to South America. And the mother gets called on to jury service. And she ends up on the trial of my uh, central villain, um, who is being charged with importing um, millions of pounds worth of cocaine into, into England. Um, basically, the, the book starts with a, a rare Ferrari being cut open at New Haven. Oh, goodness. <laughs> That's going to make a lot of car enthusiasts cringe, isn't it? <laughs> I know. It's the fake Ferrari we then learn. <laughs> Um, and, and, and the guy's on trial, and, and he's a major county lines drug dealer. I think any police officer will appreciate this. I'm not giving away too much if I tell you that actually he's a legal aid solicitor. Oh. <laughs> For 25 years, he's been hiding behind the sort of screen of being a respectable legal aid solicitor. One of those offices, the other opposite the Hope Magistrates, the Bright Magistrates Courts. But he's been secretly using his network of contacts. I knew they were up to no good. <laughs> building this huge county lines empire yeah. and my mother gets on the trial she's on jury service and second day of the trial she goes home and there's a photograph of her daughter in ecuador sitting on the kitchen table and she's thinking how the hell did that photograph get there then her phone rings and a voice says we know where she's going to be every moment of every day if you ever want to see her alive again end of the trial jury has to say two words and guess what they are. <laughs> wow, that sounds fantastic. Um, yeah, and have you, so I've done jury service before, and you do get a lot of characters in the jury yeah. service. Can we expect to see a lot of um, characters? Say, yeah, I've had real fun with the characters. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because I bet, yeah, you've got 12 jurors, have you? Um, and yeah, you've, you've probably got uh, a lot of different personalities in that room. Yeah, no, it's been it's been really good fun actually just selecting my jury. Yeah. <laughs> it's not often that you get to select your own jury, is it? I have one character. I won't go through all characters. I have one character who's this lovely guy. He's a Indian Buddhist, and um, of course he won't. He sees the good in everybody. Mm. He can't see bad in anyone. <laughs> so he's going to be uh, yeah. <laughs> he should be easily swayed to not guilty, perhaps. <laughs> Oh, fantastic. Well, I did jury service once, and they read out a list of all the witnesses that were going to appear in the trial. And of course, they were all police officers. And at the end of it, they said, please raise your hand if you know anyone in this list. And of course, <laughs> my hand went up. <laughs> because, yeah, I, I knew pretty much everyone. So they said, yeah. okay, off you go, back home. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a bit of a waste of time, because I'd obviously disclose what I did for a living. You thought a computer system could have picked that up before oh, yeah. you ever... Do, yeah, but, um... oh, we did. Well, I was on one, one trial, and, and the, um, one of the jurors halfway through the trial said to me, I've just realized I live in the same street as the accused. <laughs> well, if I, if I know, I'm not going to plead guilty because you might come beat me up. I said, Do you think I should tell the judge? I said, I think you bloody well should, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and you think, couldn't a simple computer program have. Yeah, oh dear, I don't know. Well, so the next book, we can expect it in the, in the, on the 9th of July. Right, yeah. Then I've got, um, I actually have on the 27th of June, I have the paperback of my ghost story, The Secret of Cold Hill, coming out. Yes. Yeah. 
Um, and then on October the 1st, I've got a standalone thriller called I Follow You, um, which is not a Roy Grace. It's, a, it's about an obstetrician who becomes infatuated with a, with a patient. Oh, wow. Wow. So you do, um, you do a lot of, uh, say, lone-standing books, don't you? Yeah, normally about one every other year. Yeah. I love exploring themes that may, might not necessarily work in a Roy Grace novel. Yeah, you're, so you're doing a paperback of The Secret of House and Cold Hill? Yeah, um, Hardback came out last autumn, so there's the paperback's coming out June 27th. Yeah, see, I've, I found that really interesting, that sequel, because you had, the first book was, say, a ghost story in a very creepy old house, and then you've got the, the, the sequel set in a new build, and you think, oh, you don't have many uh, horror stories set in new build houses. I think, because I'm sat in a new build house at the moment, and I feel relatively safe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Behind you. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of new builds going up at the moment, so people shouldn't feel so safe in the world, I don't think. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so my final question that I'm going to ask all my guests, um, and it's kind of tied into the podcast that we're doing, and it's a simple question, DNA or fingerprints? What's your preference? DNA. Yeah. Uh, to me, it's it's it's. Sorry. Um, let me re no, let me let me reverse that. Sorry. Fingerprints. Yeah. I'll, I'll think of it because DNA. You can identical twins can have the same DNA. That's very true. Yeah. Well, it's no two fingerprints are the same. No. Because I once had a, a case where two identical twins ended up fighting each other. It was a domestic. Um, and there was lots of blood everywhere, and the detective said, right, I want you to go swabble the blood so we know who, you know, was the, the main victim, basically. I said, what a waste of an exercise. <laughs> They're going to have the same DNA profile. <laughs> oh, oh, that's fantastic. Peter, this has been so interesting. Thank you so much. Chris, great to talk to you. And you. I hope the listeners enjoyed that. I'm sure they did as much as, as, much as I did. Um, and don't forget, uh, your next big Roy Grace novel comes out on the 9th of July. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Peter. Thanks, Chris. This is crime scene investigator Chris G signing off. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you enjoyed listening. Be sure to subscribe and follow my social media at CSI Chris G. Until next time, stay safe out there and I'll see you at the next crime scene.